You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine, produced in cooperation with AMDA. Your host is Dr. Eric Tangelos, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and a Certified Medical Director in Long-Term Care. How can dementia screening and second-stage confirmation with the use of biomarkers improve early recognition of Alzheimer's? Joining us to discuss early detection of Alzheimer's, where do we go from here, is Dr. James Galvin, professor in the Departments of Neurology and Psychiatry at New York University Langone Medical Center in New York City. Jim, welcome to the program. Thank you, Eric. Let's talk first about screening, and should we be screening? What is screening, and how is it going for Alzheimer's disease right now? It's a great question. So first, I would say that in general, most physicians and other clinicians are not screening for Alzheimer's disease. However, with the healthcare reform in the Personalized Accountability Act, it is suggested that physicians include a screening for cognitive impairment as part of the Welcome to Medicare annual visits. That said, screening for dementia would provide the ability to detect impairment at the earliest possible stages and as particularly as new treatments become available to implement them when they're likely to be the most effective. So tell us what the primary care provider can do with regards to screening to get the job done and to make sure that they've recognized the disease when they see it. Well, screening is the natural extension of medical practice. And so just like we screen to identify people at risk for high blood pressure, for high cholesterol, for diabetes, really thinking about the approach to the older adult for cognitive impairment should be no different. And again, the idea is to pick up people when they first become symptomatic, but otherwise might not offer any complaints. And so you want to try to push that envelope backwards and improve the ability to detect disease. So the definition of dementia is an impairment in memory and another cognitive domain that represents a change and interferes with everyday activities. So if we think about that, there are two ways that we can approach the problem. The first is to give the patient some type of performance task, so some type of cognitive test to see how they do. And then you compare their performance on that day to some published normative value. So you can detect whether that person is performing at a level expected of or less than would be expected for their age and their education and the like. The problem with just using that approach is that that score just gives you a snapshot of how they're doing on that particular day, but doesn't inform you as to whether there's an actual change in their abilities and gives you no information as to whether it interferes with their everyday activities. There's a limitation to what you can get from a screening perspective on simply doing a brief performance test. And that's the kind of test that a doctor would ask patient questions. Patients has to give the right or wrong answer, and they're scored in that format. Correct. So a very common example of a performance test would be something like the mini mental state exam or the clock drawing test. So you give the patient some type of performance measure, and he gives you back some response, and you determine whether that response is right or wrong. And the audience is going to know where we're going with this because what really happens is that it's the family that drags somebody in and says there's something wrong. So where does the family fit in this equation? So 
So the idea is then if you want to capture whether there's a change and whether the change interferes with everyday activity, the family is really the best source of information. And so figuring out a way to ask the family questions about changes in someone's ability has been the downside of trying to provide screening. There are now several different short screening devices where an informant, someone who knows the patient well, can tell you about the patient's performance. And so two such tests, one is called the IQ code and the other is called the AD8. I have a particular interest in the AD8 since I was one of the creators of the AD8. But the idea is that if you can ask someone who knows the patient well about whether there's change in that person's ability, then you can capture the other two aspects of a dementia diagnosis, which is change and interference. So if you were to combine a very, very brief performance task that the physician could directly administer to the patient with a very brief family interview that could be done in the waiting room, then you would have all of the aspects needed to determine whether, in fact, there's cognitive impairment in an older adult. Now, you have to make no excuses regarding the AD8. Uh, I invited you on this program because I use it, I like it, and I know that it's been translated into a number of languages. Let's stay with all of these, not just yours, but the other that you've mentioned, but let's talk some more about how our primary care providers or even the ones in long-term care can kind of administer these things in a very effective manner. The idea of doing a brief informant exam is that they typically try to capture whether there's a change. So, for example, the AD8 has eight questions, and they're yes-no questions. So is there a change in someone's ability to do any of the eight questions, which include repeating themselves, trouble with orientation to month or year, trouble operating the appliances, trouble making decisions, uh, loss of interest in their activity. So is there a change in these fundamental components of someone's everyday activities? And if there is, you simply add up the scores. So again, for the 88, it's a score of two or greater. And if you have two yeses or greater, then that is highly correlated not only with the presence of a dementia by a gold standard clinical evaluation, but also with a complete neuropsychological test battery. And we've just recently published papers that shows that it also corresponds to a change in biological markers for Alzheimer's disease. That is, if you have a two or more score on this test, you have atrophy on your MRI, particularly in the hippocampus, which is thought to be one of the most sensitive areas for looking for Alzheimer's disease. You have abnormal binding on a Pittsburgh interesting compound PET scan or a PIB PET scan, which looks at amyloid. And you have abnormal CSF biomarkers, low A-beta 42 and high tau. So you have all of the components that would suggest that this, in fact, is likely to be Alzheimer's disease. What's been really nice about the AD8 is that although we developed it originally in a research sample, and like many research samples, was largely a, a well-educated Caucasian sample, when we've taken it out into clinical samples, uh, it's worked well across different ethnic groups and different languages. And we've now done translations into Korean, Mandarin Chinese, Portuguese, French, and Spanish. And it works equally well across different cultures in their native countries. So it's not biased by many of the things that we face when we try to give a performance test to a diverse group of individuals. 
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine from ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Tangalos, and joining me to discuss early detection of Alzheimer's, where do we go from here, is Dr. James Galvin, professor in the departments of neurology and psychiatry at New York University Langone Medical Center in New York City. Jim, let's go back now and combine the screening measures with a little bit more on your discussion regarding biomarkers. This spring and summer, there has been a lot of press regarding biomarkers. What are we expecting clinicians, primary care providers, long-term care physicians and providers to do with biomarker information? Another great question, and I would say the simple answer would be, I'm not sure anybody really knows. It's clear that from a research perspective that the use of biomarkers, either MRI, PET scans, spinal fluid, appear to improve the likelihood that the diagnosis is correct. However, a well-done clinical interview that includes assessment of both patient characteristics and a family interview, which is the basis of all medicine, is correct about 90 to 93% of the time. So it's unclear in the, in the general clinical setting you know, how much a biomarker would add. Where it's most valuable is when the clinician is truly not sure what's going on. So in that very, very difficult or challenging case where there's a possibility of several possible diagnoses, then a biomarker can be really helpful because if you're not sure whether it's Alzheimer's disease or another disorder, frontal dementia, stroke-related dementias, et cetera, then a biomarker profile can be very, very helpful. The other area where it has the great potential to be advantageous is to trying to pick up preclinical or pre-symptomatic disease. That is, if there are biomarkers that clearly detect when the disease process is beginning in the brain, in theory, you could use these biomarkers to identify older adults who at the present time may be cognitively normal, but would be at risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. And this will be very important as new medications are developed that could potentially prevent any further decline in an individual, so almost a prevention type of strategy. That's not occurring right now, but I, I think that that's the goal in the future. In the long-term care setting, you know, I'm not sure the role of biomarkers in that setting. I think the role of screening for cognitive impairment in people, particularly when they're admitted into long-term care settings, is critical because the burden on the staff and the type of assistance that someone's going to need across the different levels of care is going to vary widely between people who have no cognitive impairment and people who have even the mildest of cognitive impairment. Well, you know, the drugs that we have available now for Alzheimer's disease have actually been available for quite some time, and I guess the buzz is with regards to the biomarkers, new drug development, new drug interventions. Our nursing home patients are pretty advanced, and yet we do need to make new diagnoses when they're there. But what's on the horizon, especially as the therapies relate to what you're talking about? I mean, the discovery, the early intervention early recognition and early treatment? It's been difficult because the last few clinical trials have failed to meet their primary outcomes. On the other hand, it could be that we're just not looking at the right endpoints. So if someone has Alzheimer's disease already, then proposing to treat a biological sign like reducing the amount of amyloid deposition 
may not be as effective once someone is already symptomatic as opposed to trying to catch them before they're symptomatic. And this gets back to the point I was making before. The advantage of biomarkers could be that we could identify people who are likely to get disease. And then those individuals might benefit from an anti-amyloid strategy. However, if we take people who are already at the mild to moderate stages of disease, this implies that not only is there amyloid accumulation, but there's already neuronal loss. There's already synaptic destruction so that they may not benefit from getting an anti-amyloid therapy. So in principle, the platforms might have worked if they were done in the right population. And the reason they didn't work, even though they were hypothesized to work, is because they were given too late. Jim, as we go on now, and we're about to wind down, with the future research and the drugs that are out there and the biomarker universe that really is expanding, tell us a little bit about where biomarkers may actually drive drug development. So I think the role that biomarkers can really play is that, so there are two types of biomarkers in essence. I mean, there are many types, but in in terms of principle, there are those that identify disease state. That is, if you have that biomarker positive, then you have the disease. And so they're very, 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 very specific, but they're not necessarily sensitive to change. And then there are biomarkers that are going to be very, very, very sensitive to change And so they may be markers of disease progression, but not be so good for diagnosis. And so if you have a biomarker that's very, very stable, so for example, by the time someone is diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, the amount of amyloid in their brain is pretty fixed. And so it doesn't increase dramatically over the courses of disease. Whereas if you use another biomarker like FDG-PET, which looks at the brain metabolism, that changes continually over the course of disease. So you can have one type of biomarker that can establish disease, and that might trigger one type of clinical trial platform. If you have a different biomarker that's sensitive to change, that might trigger an entirely different pharmacological development program. And so I think it's going to be a balance of trying to pick the right biomarker with the right outcome. And I think that that's going to move our field forward. I think if we rely simply on a person having mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease and let's give them a drug and hope that it works, I think that may lead to some of the disappointments that we've seen in the last few clinical trial platforms. I would like to thank my guest, Dr. James Galvin. Jim, thank you very much for being our guest this week on Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine. Thank you. You have been listening to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine from ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine is produced in cooperation with AMDA. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts.